I'm here today with uh, Tracy Arakaki. He's the founder of Punishum Motorsports, which was established over 22 years ago. Uh, he has a passion for racing, and he's accidentally found himself immersed in a world of television. He's had a clothing line. Uh, he dabbles a little bit in politics. He promoted uh, major sporting events here in Hawaii uh, in the past. Um, and now he's here with me today, and we're going to go over, uh, you know, what got him involved in all these activities. What, what got him in, in the passion for racing is fascinating to me. Um, so I want to welcome you, Tracy, for being here and for being a guest on my show. I thank you. And please, uh, just give us a little bit about your, your, your background and whatever it is that got you interested in racing in the beginning, because that's kind of where I would go. Thanks, James, for having me today, you know. Um, Racing has always been a passion of mine. You know, it started from when I was five years old when my dad first got me a model of a funny car. Mongoose and the Snake was really bad, you know, big back in the 60s. And uh, that was the heydays of, you know, the National Hot Rod Association and drag racing. You know, today, there's so many different sporting programs, ESPN, Fox Sports, Back then, in, in our days when I was growing up, all we had was ABC Wild World of Sports and Howard Cosell. That was, you know, your Saturday fix was pretty much all you got, you know, that came on the air. So watching the NHRA drag racing on Wild World of Sports and uh, the Daytona races from the NASCAR, Ugh. you know, I was not very lucky where I knew racing was my passion at a very young age, but that was not something that I had my parents were into. So I remember watching the Daytona 500 and my dad coming to change the channel because yes. that wasn't his thing. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I never got to do it until I was actually an adult where I could take the risk and the expenses because racing is very expensive all on my own. But I knew from a very young age and especially growing up back in the heyday, like I said, we had folks like the Evil Knievels and stuff. Oh, yeah, that's you right. You know what I mean? I and forgot all about that. So yeah. watching him and you know trying to emulate him on your bicycle when you're out in the... <laughs> You know, playing with your friends on the weekends or after school and stuff. So it it, it was always within me from back in my day. You know? So I guess, like, at what point did you, like, consciously decide? Um, or I guess, what was your first venture into to racing, amateur racing, or anything like that? Like, a lot of people, like, I had friends who did dirt bike racing, things like that. Um, right. Were you involved in anything like that? Or no. what was your path exactly? I had, I had never gotten into any type of form of motorsports in my younger youth until I was an adult. Um, when I was in high school, I volunteered a lot with the 4-H program. So one of the guys who were in college at the time, I went to visit him at the dorms at UH, and he had a motorcycle, a small little GPZ, you know, 500 or 350. It was a Kawasaki. <laughs> and so he took me back home on his motorcycle back to my house in Iowa. And I got to ride on a motorcycle for the first time, and I thought that that was just the coolest thing. You were, like, around the back? Like yeah. holding them? I was riding on, oh, riding on the oh, back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that so, sounds cool. <laughs> anyway, right? So the guy was, you know, um, taking me back. He was an older guy, so he, was, he had a motorcycle. I, I, I knew nothing about it, and I thought that motorcycles were the coolest thing. So one day, one of the local motorcycle shops here had a bike that was advertised in a newspaper. It was an Interceptor 500. And, uh, and what, I, what kind of bike is that? It's a I Honda. Don't... It's a 500. It's a uh, Honda motorcycle. Like a, like a rice burner kind? or the Yeah, other? It's, like when the, it's like when the first um, 
sport bikes started coming out. It was like oh, okay. 1986 or 85 or something like oh, that. That's when you I came know? out the womb, man. Yeah, so <laughs> it was, it's, it's when they started getting into that, you know, crouch, you know, stance on the motorcycles with plastic fairings for helping with the aerodynamics and the wings. Oh. And so I, I just thought that, that was the coolest thing. So that, this one was like apparently abandoned and it was kind of ready for the junkyard. So we got to get it pretty cheap. Okay. Um, my parents were never going to probably allow it to be <laughs> kept in the garage at the house. So a friend of mine's who lived across the street, I kept it at his house for the longest time. And um, I eventually got to meet a guy who we started riding with, and those guys would go out and race at Hawaii Raceway Park. And so I finally got to get out to Hawaii Raceway Park. Well, first of all, that bike that I had, a friend of mine, I let him borrow it, and he crashed it. <laughs> uh, right? Good, yeah, good friend. Good friend yeah, yeah, good friend. So <laughs> he crashed that motorcycle, and then uh, I heard from another person that I knew of this guy who could fix that motorcycle. So the guy who damaged my motorcycle, his father paid me whatever the, the cost was going to be to get it repaired. Oh, wow. And nice. I took it to this guy's house to go and get it fixed, and he lived not too far from us. And um, he started fixing the motorcycle, but... He ended up spending the money on something else. <laughs> so the bike that was broken that he was supposed to fix never got fixed. But eventually someone had told him, you know, to do the right thing. And so they fixed me up another bike that he had that was sitting in his garage in a pile of parts and pieces. And it was a Kawasaki GPZ 750. And um, they started teaching me how to ride. And I started riding with these guys. And um, that's how I got interested in racing because that's what they did. They went out to the, the Hawaii Raceway Park. So getting out there for the first time and watching them race and then to actually have gotten over there on a street racing night to go down the racetrack was, that was a thrill. And, and what, yeah. was, uh, what was that? It was just a, like a straightaway for drag racing? Drag racing. It was a drag thing. racing thing. And they, it's not, is that the one that they always say was out like in Eva or something? Campbell Industrial Park. Oh, okay, okay. It's in Campbell Industrial Park. So um, now it's a whole bunch of warehouse spaces. They hmm. piece it out, close on a racetrack that was around since 1964. They closed <laughs> it in 2006 after 42 years. It, and uh, What was the reason behind that? Greed and politics. Oh, yeah, typical, typical. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I kind of got into politics later on in life. But it's, you know, it's unfortunately that's where a lot of the things end up coming out around here is, is due to politics. Right. But, you know, further on down the road, I started to get more into racing. Um, I got involved with the local road racing association. I did a whole bunch of um, events with them in the drag racing. But I wanted to do more. So before I got into the racing side, I ended up with a clothing company. You know, I, in high school, I learned how to fix show cars from a guy. <laughs> and then uh, I had to work it off because he was a breeder of uh, show bull terriers. So I got the bull terrier from him. I couldn't afford to pay it even after saving up my <laughs> birthday money. So he asked me if I was into cars. So I ended up working at his house on the weekends and learning how to build show cars and do body and fender and stuff. So I ended up being in the body and fender industry for several years after high school. That's interesting. So I'm just like, you went around, you were around these guys who, who are racing these bikes. When you first raced your first bike down the little strip, right. zoom, the drag strip, yeah. 
Was that on the, the bike that you bought to store it at your friend's garage? Or did you no, have to? No, that one, that one was crashed. Remember, that's the one that was crashed. Ah. <laughs> so this other bike was kept at that guy's house who was supposed to fix the bike. But he put this other bike together for me, and we kept it at his house for a while until, you know, we, we would go out to the drag strip. And um, one night I got brave enough, and I finally took the bike home. <laughs> and I put it in my garage. So when my dad was getting ready, and my mom was getting ready to go to work one day, they... They saw this bike sitting there in the garage, you know. I'm sure they were not probably happy. Yeah, seeing their son. But at that point, I was an adult, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, once you get to that point when you're over 18, you can kind of write your own ticket to do things that are dangerous and dumb, I guess, you know. Yeah, uh, unless you're living at home with them, I think. Yeah, I was still under their roof at the time, <laughs> you know. But it's um, my introduction into racing and stuff. And then how did your family feel like, did they know how serious you were, or you just no. never mentioned it? Or yeah, it's one. Of, it's I don't think my dad ended up really realizing how much I was actually into it. Cause for a lot of folks, you know, they just think it's a a phase, mm-hmm. a passing phase kind of type of thing. But for me, it was a passion that had burned inside of me for a long time. So after I left the garment industry, I started my own contract printing company. And I did a lot of contract printing for some other bigger manufacturers here, you know, printing up, you know, family or friends who did family reunions or baseball teams and that kind of type of stuff. So that was my home business that I did at home. And then, you know, when I wasn't doing that, then I'd be working on a bike, getting it ready for the bracket race. That was <laughs> the 50 state pro gas, you know, at that time. And when you ran in the 50 state pro gas in those index categories, you know, it was kind of expensive to race because you had to have the bikes that went so fast, at least, you know, nine seconds, you know, for it to be into, you know, the, the super gas class or pro bike back then was, you know, 1120s. And street bikes back then, you were lucky if they did, you know, 12 seconds. Right. Huh. So it was a lot slower and you had to spend money, which I didn't have. Right. And so bracket was the next best thing. Besides, when you end up getting into those index categories with the NHRA, you have to have a license. You just can't go down a racetrack, especially when you're talking about nine seconds, you know, and 130 miles an hour. What is the license for? Like to, to, to race in that organization or? To within that particular, the licenses are for within that particular class. So it designates how fast you can go. Right. So you got to, <laughs> you got to get a, like a medical clearance oh, and then you got to take so many passes down within you know so if it's a 990 class you got to prove that you can run that nine seconds and then you have to have other racers that signed off on your license in order for you to now be a licensed you know racer in the national hot rod association so all of that you know doctors you know you know checking you out and everything else that takes money (laughs) so when so a lot of times what i did was i ended up racing the brackets brackets all you have to do is pay the entry fee and you know and to be honest brackets made money indexes was bragging rights you know the pro gas you, you walk away with a trophy and, and very little money at the end of that particular night but mm. during the brackets you know that particular two years that i raced i i bought another bike oh wow whenever i won i would end up turning it back into buying more tools so i go down to sears and i now could afford to buy a dremel tool <laughs> so i could start fabricating my own parts and pieces and stuff so you know i was dedicated enough where whatever money i made i always put it back into the passion, you know, buying oil, filters, new tires, you know what I mean? Buying tools. 
Yeah, because so that you was your, that's your thing, yeah. That's your thing, right? So it's like a business. When you run a business, right, it's not like, yeah, now I made 100 bucks. I'm going to go blow it on going to the bar or, right. or taking my girl to dinner or something. Yeah. You're serious in it. You're going to keep pumping your, your funds back into that business to make it to grow. And, and, and racing, you know, is, is no different because you want to try and get to the next race to try and see if you can win some more money again. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And what was the racing scene like? It was it was it big? Was there a lot of people? Was that like a money maker for not only the state or the county, but for the people itself who raced? Yeah, I mean back back in those days, the stands were pretty packed. You know, then I, I was fortunate to see when you had guys like Hawaii's legend Roland Leong come down from the mainland with his funny car, <laughs> and so they had those exhibitions, and it, it was the, not only the stands were packed, but you had people lining the drag strip down on both sides. And there were so many folks that came from the neighbor islands to participate. I still remember that first night on a Friday night, the first round of qualifying for guys who were competing in those index classes. It didn't end till like 4 o'clock the next morning. I mean, that's how many folks they had actually just trying to compete to qualify <laughs> to race on that next Saturday night. You know what I mean? That's so, crazy. And then you listen to the old timers who were back there in the 60s, and they say the 60s and the 70s was even bigger than it was in the 80s. Really? Yeah. Huh, it's interesting because I, I, I know several people who are into like car racing. Right. Um, I don't know if they're into motorcycle racing and things like that. I never asked, but, and they've been pushing for, you know, a new, a new track for the longest time. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely the, the hunger for a lot that. Of biz- a lot of businesses closed down, you know, that, that had supported the racing industry here in, in, uh, on Oahu. You know, Oahu's facility was the only one in our entire state where you go to the neighbor islands, they don't have drifting. You know, some of them mm. do have SCCA, and it's something that's only been recently. They don't have, you know, go-kart racing. On every, Oahu was the only track where we had every type of form of racing. We had, you know, open-wheel vehicles that would go door-to-door or SCCA folks that would be doing time trials, um, Motorcycle road racing, drag racing, drifting. I mean, it was the only place where it had helped to also launch the careers of a lot of folks that went on to race on the world championship stage. Like Hawaii's Todd Okuhara, Roland Leong. They started over there at Hawaii Raceway Park back in the 60s too. So, Hmm. you know, even if you don't get into racing, you know, a lot of the high school auto shop classes, it leads down to another path of being a mechanic. Yeah. You know, mechanics, you know, you can take, Courses where you, you got a two-year degree at our local community college or you can go to some place like UTI or some of these other trade schools on the mainland. And you're not going to be saddled with the debt like a four-year degree is. And when yeah. you come out of it at the end of the day, these are very lucrative jobs. I mean, a, a kid just getting out of the school can make 40000 46000 right off the bat. And as they go through their career and they become more knowledgeable, they become more valuable to the industry. And they make six figures. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like, like Todd Okuhara leaving, who started working at his dad's shop. The guy's a crew chief on these nitro funny cars, and, and now he's a top fuel crew chief on the main. These guys are making like upwards of a half a million dollars of a year doing that. That's you know crazy. what I mean? So, the motorsports industry is an extremely lucrative path for folks who are not going to be a doctor or an attorney. You know, but a lot of the folks who end up going to college. They're saddled with debt, and a lot of folks that I know of, a vast majority of them who got a degree, right, are not even in their field doing what they got their degree. Yeah, 100%, 100%. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now, you know, if you ever file for bankruptcy, 
that's one of the things that you can never get erased from your bankruptcy, right? Yeah. Child support, taxes, and your student loans. <laughs> student loans. Yeah, no, and that's wild too. So for you, you've competed. What was the furthest you've went? What was the highest achievement that you not, got? Not really that high, man. I was fortunate enough to do some racing on the mainland. Uh, some of the club racing, the motorcycle road racing up there. So I've been to tracks like Grattan in Michigan, Mid-Ohio, that kind of type of places. Um, once you kind of been up there at that level, though, and you came back home over here at Hawaii Racing Park, the track was not quite up to that specs <laughs> as far as safety-wise is concerned. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I had tried to want to promote and bring in motorsports events from back in the 90s. But um, unfortunately, without sponsors and connections political wise i was never afforded that opportunity to do that so i was trying to figure out a way of what could i do to be valuable to the motorsports community so i can get in to see all these different events and things that i wasn't just looking at drag racing or or um road racing mm -hmm. you know what i mean i wanted to try and figure out a way how to do and cover everybody and so I came up with an idea of doing a television show. And um, I knew nothing about television back in 1998, right? So <laughs> a buddy of mine had told me of this guy who did some stuff at this place called Olelo. And so I went to Olelo, got all the information, took their classes. And in 1999, I started piecing together with a little compact VHS tape recorder that I had on my own. That was my dad's one. Oh, God. So I was shooting footage with that and then, you know, going through their classes to learn how to use their equipment. And uh, the, in March of 2000 was the first airing of Punisher Motorsports. And, oh, my God, it was, it was brutal. But, you know, we covered the car show guys. We covered the SCCA. We covered the drag racing folks. We covered... Uh, the Hardy Davidson cruises, and so a guy that I knew who had an automotive shop, I met him at a fair at Waimanalo, and this guy who was an announcer, um, I really liked him. I wanted him to host my television show. Come to find out, my mom who worked at the finance company, the guy worked with my mom at the finance company, <laughs> so she talked to him, right? And I talked to this guy who ran his automotive shop, and I got my on-air talent. I have actually had oh, wow. no intention of being in front of the camera. I just wanted to be, uh, all I thought about doing was just the camera work and things like that. And so it took several months to get these guys to come on board. And um, they ended up becoming the host and the reporter of my television show. And so after we shot this very first show, we ended up having the screening with everybody at my friend's automotive you know, shop over there in Waipahu. And I didn't know what to think of it, right? <laughs> And uh, so everybody came in. It was a potluck style, and there was probably about 50, 60 people over there in the shop from all these various car clubs and, and race association and everything. At the end of the show, everybody applauded. Oh, you nice. know what I mean? It was kind of like, it was kind of funny because when we ended up going over there to the very first event and um, had talked to the folks from the 50th State Pro Gas Association, and they made the announcement in the driver's meeting, and I remember everybody snickering because like, they saw the camera. Yeah, it was a big broadcast camera and everything, but it had the words Olelo on it. Yeah, yeah. So I remember guys snickering like, <laughs> Olelo, right? Because Olelo, for anyone who might not know, is public, like public... Uh, public access. Yeah, public access. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like, you know, the... The, the YouTube yeah. of back in back the day. In the, hey, that's how Tom Green started. Right. That's how a lot of guys started. Right? It's public access, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because to get on television back then, 
you know it, it was very expensive <laughs> yeah. you know you, you had to buy airtime or you know be able to put out a quality content of program that way you could get it on one of the network stations cable back then even then was still like not where it is today yeah you know and so to have been able to have public access was a blessing because you could use it as an opportunity to hone your craft right and so we were by the time the second or third you know episode came out and everybody was crying if they weren't on the air right so these guys <laughs> oh, who were arrogant and making it. fun of you you know so yeah. you can now look i would look at these guys and go did you win <laughs> right it's like well no well maybe if you won the race then maybe we can put you on the on the air or something like that you know but it was kind of funny to see how as you know in that short three to four month period where now it started to get out there in a community you know so there were so many restrictions on Olelo back then where you only could have use the camera like one day a month but for me to go out and cover all these different events and these clubs and stuff I practically needed it every single weekend. Yeah. So it took a lot of time where, you know, like I would, I would check out the camera from Olelo on Saturday night because you only could take it out for 24 hours. Right? So I would check the camera out. It's like out. the library. Yeah. yeah. So I could, I could check the camera out on, on Saturday evening about, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then I would run over there to the, the drag race to cover them. Then I would go over to the circle track site, which is the dirt guys, right? Get some races from them. And then come back before the evening was over, like about 11 o'clock, to catch the ending of the guys who made it to the finals for the drag racing. Wow. Go back home in the morning, right? Go and catch the Harley Davidson guys as they get ready for their cruise or their poker run mm. as they're getting started. Go back to Hawaii Raceway Park and cover either the Hawaii Road Racing Association for the motorcycle guys or the SCCA that was doing their club racing. And then run back about 2 o'clock as the, as the bike guys are coming back for their function with now they had everybody gathered for the music and entertainment and their games and whatever they were doing afterwards. So I would cover like four to five different events within that 24-hour period before I had to drop the camera back off at a level. Oh, wow. And there was no like loophole around it? Like you couldn't have a, like a friend like check out the camera? Yeah, you, you, you could, but they would have to be tied into like your programming or, or they would have to be um, certified with the equipment because you have to be certified to be able to take the equipment out. Oh, too. I see, I see. So as... But the thing that I did was, you know, a lot of this equipment, because it was public access, a lot of times it was really grungy. Like the equipment didn't work. Yeah. So I would be the guy to help them to find out which one did work. And then I always ended up turning it back in better than I left it. Oh, man, you're a good guy. Yeah, that's so, why. Yeah. so whenever I needed to borrow the equipment, they made sure they gave me the dirtiest, most grungiest camera they had in the inventory. Because then you know, when I brought it back, the thing was going to be nice and clean, right? Said, oh, Tracy's coming. Give him that one yeah. or whatever. So by the time, you know, like after the first six months of doing the TV show, they knew that I was serious about knowing and putting out a good programming for their station. And so they would end up allowing me to, you know, take out more the time, the camera equipment more than allotted. Or they would allow me to come inside and, and do more editing. So, you know, I had a successful screen printing company that was going on at the time. I had a part-time guy that was working for me and everything else. And I ended up just letting that company wither on the vine to just learn the television aspect of it, you know. Now, I'm curious because with the Olelo thing, do they, do they help you? Did they help you edit or you had to edit no, everything you, yourself? They, they basically give you the opportunity to use the equipment. They'll guide you. But, you know, putting in the time and doing all this stuff is all up to you, hmm. you know. So it's uh, one of those things where the more you do, the more you learn. The more you learn, the better you get, the yeah, better product you produce. So, you know, later on about a year into it, 
a friend of mine's back there would tell me, hey, try and take it to the local cable station. You know what I mean? And um, I tried to do that, and they were critiquing my show, and I was kind of like... <laughs> like, bro, it's a Lalo. Come on. Yeah. And it, <laughs> but they were... And it was kind of funny, because then one of their top TV shows back then was this guy who had this handheld camera. Everybody <laughs> knows him as the small guy with the camera. Really? Right? So, Tiny TV. Tiny TV. Right? Is so, it... <laughs> And, and I was like, wow, the world of tiny TV is telling me that my television show isn't good enough for their station. And then right after that, I ended up, you know, getting um, some national awards for my television program. Oh, wow. Nice. And then um, that very year, Olelo started doing their own um, award ceremonies. And it was being judged by a lot of the folks within the local television industry here from the news stations and everything else, too. And then I ended up winning that award. And then in 2001... A buddy of mine for his TV show that was on OC16 back then, which was called um, The Little Grass Shack. He was doing his home improvement show. <laughs> the Little Grass Shack. Yeah, The Little Grass Shack. That's what people think of Hawaii. Right. Like, oh, you guys live in shacks. shacks. Wow. So that's how he kind of did the show. <laughs> and it was kind of like Hawaii's version of Bob Vila. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> Bob Vila. That's right? right. So back in those days. And um, so <laughs> he told me that KHNO is looking for a cameraman. So I sent him my demo reel, and then I got a call to come inside from the uh, the chief I mean the the, um, the chief photographer and the uh, the guy who was not the station manager but he was the operations manager and um, they saw my thing and they liked the way I shot and because I knew how to do this thing called nonlinear editing which Olelo started to introduce so I was one of their guinea pigs because everything was done tape to tape back then oh. and so they had this program that they're trying to do right now to introduce a new uh, class to the, the students or people who are getting into Olelo, uh, Final Cut Pro, non-linear oh, editing, yeah, yeah. introduction to that. And so I took a chance and, and the, the class was free, so I got to learn this non-linear editing. You know, a lot of the folks who don't want to try and progress, like all those programs who were really, really popular back then, and they were just doing the tape-to-tape -tape stuff, they're no longer around because they didn't, you know, progress with the times yeah right so being able to do that non-linear editing then allowed me to get into the news industry right i was a shooter but being able to edit in a news environment is is very stressful i mean look at when you talk about most stressful jobs you know <laughs> one of the top in the top seven most stressful jobs is like president of the united states emergency room uh, guys who are in war and a newsroom environment is one of the most stressful jobs you can be in, right? When you get the breaking news, you know, and the producers, you know, on the intercom over the, the station telling you five minutes to live and you're the lead story and <laughs> you got 10 holes in your, your story so far and you're still editing. And yeah, you, you got to figure news, it out. Yeah, you got to figure it out because, huh. you know, when they say five, six, and 10, it's five, six, and 10. It's not 605 or 607 because you couldn't get your story on <laughs> there in time. Yeah. You know what I mean? So a lot of times, you know, they're, they're going over the intercom and you have to go and do what they call putting your story to the server. So they would pull the story up as a reporter is, you know, leading into the story and then they roll out of that. So a lot of times you're like so stressed to get the time out where now you got to do what they call roll from cutter where you're plugging your holes in the story <laughs> while the reporter is doing the lead in oh, wow. and they're giving you the countdown in five, four, three and then you just like, just the last one comes inside and then you got to hit the play button straight from your... You're a cutter, right? 
and so you finally got it on the air. It looks kind of not that good. Yeah. Right. But it's okay. It's but it, it, it made air. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? So it's it 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 taught me to learn to be fast. You know, and in my program taught me how to shoot quality. So, you know, I, ten years later down in the industry, you know, I was fortunate enough to learn from a lot of guys who were Emmy award winning folks. And at the end of the when I first started, I was the only guy in the cage in the newsroom that didn't have a degree in the field. <laughs> when I left the industry ten years later on, I was the only cameraman in Hawaii news history to be the best video award for the Society of Professional Journalists four years in a row. Oh, wow. By the time Congrats. we got to the fourth year, <laughs> nobody entered. Oh, really? You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's, it's, kind of, um, it's kind of cool to be able to progress in such a competitive industry. So how long, how long was the Olelo show, and then how long until... Were you still doing the Olelo show while doing the news? The yeah, show when, I, when I first started in the news, I was still kind of doing it. And um, at about 2005 is when... I decided to make the jump. Let's try and see if we can get it onto one of the regular stations. And so in 2005, um, because I was working in the newsroom, which is the sister station, KHNO, which is K5, um, you know, KHNO was the, the, the main station and K5 was the sister station to KHNO, which was the NBC affiliate. Mm. And so I knew a lot of the folks in the industry and, and I was fortunate to talk to the station manager back then and he gave me a chance and uh, my, my show got on K5. And what was the title of that one? Punisher Motorsports. Punisher, so, yeah, that was Punisher so it was Motorsports. it was still, you know, being able to do the news thing and still run my television show and now get it to a broadcast station, not cable, but you're in the regular station where it can be seen across the entire state. So that was a really big leap for, for me to be able to do that. And um, just to be surrounded by so many folks within the industry and um, get their critiques on what I needed to do to keep improving it, you know, and... Um, and how long were you there? How long did you do the cameraman work? I was, I was at KHNL to the merger happened in 2009, and then I was doing all of my own things after that, and then I got a call from uh, KHON to do some contract work, and, mm. you know, and then... It was I like, used to know a guy that did that. And then I think he moved to like Kauai. I don't know what is that like. If there's a story over there, don't yeah. Oh, and then okay, then, okay. then then they can give you a call, and then you know you're you're you send them the footage, and then what about the camera? Like, did they give do you no, like? No, you probably got to use your own equipment because oh, right? you're not part of the actual station, right? So, so you're just like an independent contractor. Yeah, basically. Oh, I see. I see. That's what it is. Huh, interesting. And so then I then then on the last stint that I did was um, do a fill-in for another cameraman over there at uh, KITV. Oh yeah. yeah. Did you ever like go on as like a reporter? They ever put you on? No, no, I was always I was always like the video journalist or just the cameraman. Yeah. And then during this whole time, even during the Olelo, were you racing? Like, did did is there footage of you that you had them record and you put yourself on? No, but I I I stopped racing back in '95. Uh, oh yeah. Because it got it, it's once you got up there to the mainland and you kind of seen how things are done up there, and you come back here. Um. A street bike versus one that you were leasing from a company that had, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? It's, 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 it's like hopping on back onto like a, a, a lawnmower run, you know, mini bike compared to running something that... It's like hopping on like a Kawasaki Z400, yeah? No, actually it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's like getting onto a moped. 
Really? You know what I mean? It's it's just it's just not the same. Cause I mean, a lot of the motorcycles like the one that you got today, they were a lot more sophisticated than the full-on race bikes back in the day. You know, suspension-wise, tire compound-wise, everything oh, yeah, has improved drastically. Right? I mean, you guys got ABS. Throttle, yeah. Throttle fuel injection, right? That was all non-existent back in the day, right? So a lot of it had to be. In, it was more of a of a rider's aspect so you know the reason why i got into motorcycles was because it was really fast and it wasn't expensive compared to a car yeah i I remember seeing i remember seeing a story in like the publication motorcyclist back in the day where it was talking about you know how a guy who was flipping burgers with his with his motorcycle could beat a a doctor in his you know two hundred thousand dollar porsche that's a good that's a good promotion there yeah 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 you know that's what kind of got me hooked on it and then when you fix it up and we went out to the track it was kind of funny because back in back in the day at Hawaii Raceway Park your vehicle it was called lane zero when you went on a street racing night where your vehicle had to go faster than I think it was like 1140s or something back what is that 11.40 seconds down a quarter mile for you to qualify to go into the lane zero back then now you got to remember like guys with their Chevelles and their Oh, their, their yeah. Camaros and things like that, <laughs> the street cars. Blowing down. Those, those guys back then, like the mark for a fast car was 15 seconds back in the mid 80s, right? So if you were 15? going. 15? Yeah, 15 that seconds. slow, man. Compared to today's yeah, standards. But yeah. back then, that was, that was like the thing. That was like you, you, you were somebody <laughs> if you could get your car going into the 15 seconds back then. I think then. a Tesla is like, what, like six seconds? Yeah, but we're talking. Not even. Yeah, but we're talking 35 years ago. Yeah, right that's now, true. Back you know in the day, I mean? it's before I came out the womb, though. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, it's like 11, 1140s back in the day. So it's kind of cool because when you got to go into that lane zero, everybody knew that you were one of the fastest on our island. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it was kind of it was kind of cool where I could go into there and you see all these other guys, and then they pull you up to line up against another guy with his street Camaro or whatever it is, and you just kind of let him go first and then just blow his weeds down. Oh, yeah, so you're, you're racing cars and yeah. bikes and everything. We used yeah. to race cars oh, and bikes then. So it was, it was kind of cool. But did, did Hawaii ever have, like, the the circular track or anything? Dirt track. They had a circular dirt track. Oh, it was a dirt track. Yeah. What do you race on that? Like, you wouldn't take your... The dirt track, they had, I mean, they had some really fast cars. They had, like, the wing sprint cars. Huh. You know what I mean? They had They had people who had bombers where there was, like, um, junkyard cars oh. <laughs> go around it all the way up to those really fast alcohol burning you know yeah, methanol yeah. burning spring cars and stuff so it, it it's um there's all different forms of racing for people to get into you know so you know as, as we started doing the motorsports TV show um when Hawaii Raceway Park closed in 2006 it was devastating for all of us because now there was no place for us to race Right, so a lot of folks were. You could see the the, the spike up of um, fatalities happening on the street. At one time, we yeah. we hit like almost a hundred fatalities a year, which back then I think we had. I think the record back then in uh, two thousand five was I think it was like sixty seven or seventy six or something like that. So the spike was significant. And in nineteen ninety five, you know, drifting was starting to become the hot thing. You know, mm. I mean, actually, two, I mean, 19, I mean, excuse me, 2000, I mean, nine, excuse me, 2007. Is that, so, is that, wait, when did Tokyo Drift come out? 
I feel like everyone when Fast and the Furious came yeah, out. Yeah, I think that was around kind of like pretty much the time, like about 2007, 2008, when it was, you know, when the Fast and Furious franchise was starting to really get their track. I just remember everyone leaving the parking lot after Fast and the Furious, revving their little cars. Yeah, I had a Dodge yeah, Neon. Yeah. I was about to race everybody. Bro. Oh, so you were one of those guys with a Neon that told everybody you had 500 horsepower <laughs> after you put an air intake on and a little canister on it. Yeah, I just put a little nitrous uh, sticker, sticker on it. Oh, like, that's good for five horsepower. Yeah, right bro, there, I'm sponsored. Know? What? <laughs> <laughs> and it was my mom's car. But. Oh, even 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 better yet. Because it blew up, she had to go and pay for it too. Yeah. Huh? Let me neutral drop this bitch. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Oops! Yeah, I did that too many times. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, that's not good. And what did you died. What did you blame it on after that, though? No, nah, my mom knew. She's not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but yeah. So okay, so uh, so when was the last time you sat on a motorcycle and, and blew down a track? Ninety five. Yeah, that was that. It was a um, it was a road racing um, track day event at Grattan. Um, Where's that? What is Grattan? Grattan's a, a track out there in Michigan. Ugh. It's in it's in Michigan. I feel like it's cold. Yeah, not during the, not during the summer months though. Mm, true. You know what I mean? So it, it was um when we raced up in the in the mainland in the mid nineties, I started a calendar company on a t shirt line and uh lean angle sportswear and bonsai designs for the, the calendar company. So I went across the country what they called the motorcycle um international motorcycle shows. So it was from Seattle to Cobo Hall in Detroit, you know, Chicago. Uh, Jacob Javits in New York, Daytona in Florida. So it, it got to travel all over the country, and I advertised the calendar and T-shirt line, and it it did it did pretty well. Where it afforded me to um, afford to lease a bike from one of the the top teams up there back in the day, and I did that for a year and a half. And um, my buddy and I, who he was ra- uh, racing and and riding with us back in the day here in Hawaii back in the mid '80s, his um, Family lived up there in Highland Park in uh, Illinois, which is um, Highland Park is kind of like the Kahala of um, oh, really? Chicago area. It's um, Michael Jordan lived like a, a half block away, kind of type of stuff. And uh, his brother, them guys, ran a well-known running store called Running Right up there in the Highland Park area. The father was head of cardiology at the University of Illinois. Oh, nice! And yeah. so it was. A, it was basically the Home Alone movie. Mm-hmm. You know that, that nice mansion where they, they, they have the exterior shots of that particular house? The parents' house was two doors down from that particular house in the home alone. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. So when it's a nice I was neighborhood, there, man. Yeah, it was a nice neighborhood. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of funny because when I was, um, I told the mom one day I wanted to shovel snow. I wanted to see, see like, it was to shovel snow. So they, they, didn't call the, they didn't call the snow guy that came to plow because they, they do the plowing up into your, your property, right? They just pile the snow yeah. all up at the back end of the property, right? So I told her I wanted to do it. She goes, okay, knock yourself up. She called up the guy to cancel the guy oh. that day and I shovel snow. And I, and I enjoyed it because it's like kid from Hawaii shoveling snow. That's never true. did That's do true. it, you know what I mean? And the snow, because it was colder up there in Chicago, it wasn't the pack slushy stuff it was the fluffy you know blow away kind of mm. type of snow so when i was out there shoveling the snow one day and i used to smoke cigarettes back then i was at the sidewalk smoking a cigarette and michael jordan his white mercedes benz drove by drove by and i was pointing at him and he looked at me and he waved <laughs> he's like who the <laughs> so i was like pointing at wow that's jordan you know so another funny george story too is because the guy who worked at the brother's running store was also Michael Jordan's ball boy because his father had built up a computer company that got bought out by IBM. 
And so he ended up doing accounting afterwards, and he did the books for um, Phil Jackson and Scottie Pippen for their financial books. So this, this kid, Brian, ended up working at this running store, and um, he was a ball boy prior to that for Michael Jordan when they won the first championship. So Michael Jordan signed a poster to this kid, and <laughs> because awesome. it got a wrinkle on it, he was going to throw the poster out. So my buddy calls me up and he says, hey, there's an autographed Michael Jordan poster over here. Do you want it? And I said, hell yeah. So he sent it to me. I got it framed and everything else. And it's still sitting in my home office to, to this day. So it's, oh, yeah? it's, kind of, it's kind of funny about how I got that particular poster. <laughs> it was connected to racing in a far off kind of yeah, way. Yeah, no, for way, sure. You know? But it's kind of interesting, the different stories and twists and turns that you make. And um, I was kind of fortunate that you know, my mom helped to support a lot of the stuff that I did. Because if you don't have family support when you're trying to do stuff like that, it's, it's next to impossible to get it done. Because in drag racing and in road racing, motorcycles, cars, um, even NASCAR, like Indy cars, to this day, what, what's happening in the sport, unlike stick and ball games, you got to literally bring the sponsors to the table for you to get the ride. You know, you don't, you mm. don't get paid for you to go ahead. I mean, there's very few people who can do that. You know, the Kurt Bushes and all, but all the new guys that are coming into the sport today, you know, they have to bring their own sponsors to the table to not only get the ride, but to make sure you can get a paycheck. And how does that, so that's one thing I've always wondered is, <clears throat> you see like, a, I don't know, I don't watch NASCAR, but you hear about like Jeff Gordon and all these people, but yeah, where do you start even just driving in a circle, beating other people? As soon as you can walk. If I had a son, as soon as he could walk, he's going to be on an electric tight bike from the time that he <laughs> yes. can walk. No, I mean, like, like, is it because these other cities and states have the actual tracks yeah. for amateurs to go? They, they, you got to figure out a way how to get through the ranks. You know, like, there, there's so many instances over here where, like, we're at the go-kart tracks over here when they were running here. You know, you got, you got kids from here who were doing it from when they were very young. And... Um, Oh, yeah. They were fortunate the parents could afford to get those expensive K-carts and all that type of thing. So there was a story of a, of a kid when I was doing my Punisher Motorsports. He was, a, a, he was the best here in our state. He would go to like the championships on Maui or the Aloha State Games, mm -hmm. and he would win it all the time. He ended up going to some of the um, big races on the mainland where uh, one of the big go-kart races is called the Blueberry Classic. And this kid from Hawaii won it. Right, so that means that you're one of like the best go kart racers in the country. Because usually go kart racing, if you're in that particular genre of, of motorsport, go kart racing usually led up to open. It's an open wheel deal, so it ended up open wheel like into Indy cars. You know what I mean? That's that's like usually the path. A lot of the Indy car drivers, when they end up practicing during the off season, what do they do? They race in go karts, right, to stay fresh and to keep that. Really? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's almost the same. It's that's almost the same feeling because it's. It's low to the ground. Yeah. It's got really wide tires, right? So the horsepower to traction rate, you know, is really good. So you can get a lot of good cornering speed off of it. So there was a guy who came over here for this clinic every year before named Mimo Gidley. He used to hold these go-kart clinics over here once a year. And after Hawaii Raceway Park closed, they, they, uh, folks at one of the shopping malls used to let them do it in their overflow parking lot. So they had that go-kart, you know, <laughs> clinic over there. And so this IndyCar driver that used to come over here, he saw this kid and he made friends with him. And they offered him, a, uh, when he was ready to go to college, they offered him an opportunity to work with this carding company. And he, if he went to the University of Nevada, he could stay over there at the carding place. 
and everything else and that would have led him to introducing him to some of the IndyCar team owners because this guy ended up driving for Chip Ganassi with the Target team in IndyCar. That that that's a top that's a top tier team. Oh, it doesn't yeah. get any higher now. That's 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 like that's like a Jeff Gordon ride in IndyCar. Right? <laughs> so the the kid ended up getting this opportunity, but he got homesick. Mm. Right? So yeah. he ended up coming back home and now he's ah. he's working like at a firefighter and as a federal firefighter in one of the, 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 the bases here. Oh, so hey, that's a are, good gig, though. It's a good gig, <laughs> but it's like, you know, f- to have an opportunity to where you're, you're going to be at like the Indy 500. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, that's that's the hard part. A lot of folks end up not trying to keep pursuing <clears throat> it because it, to get to those levels, man, it's a lot of sacrifice. It's hard. I bet. Well, that's how most everything is, which is why it's... I like that you keep saying that... Uh, you know, when you were pursuing each step along the way, you started a clothing thing or, or you were doing something to, to generate your own revenue to pay you your own to, way in a you sense. You had to. It's kind of like, like me right now for um, what we did was with Punisher Motorsports, I ended up befriending a guy who was one of the, one of the, the he's still the longest running professional in the pro stock motorcycle class in the NHRA World Championships. Oh, wow. So I sponsored his bike one year to get this program that I had called Race to Vote to try and get people aware here in Hawaii because a lot of our motorsports community folks um, are not registered voters. So it was a program to yeah, I can see that. Get, get, get them to like, you know, get encouraged to register to vote. And so we timed it with Steve Johnson to be a part of his program at the Vegas race because the Vegas race, we probably got easily over 1,000 1,200 folks over here from Hawaii that go up to that Vegas race every year. So that was a good opportunity to get it at that world stage level. Yeah. Because when he was qualifying, the announcer would kept talking about, you know, they don't have a racetrack here in Oahu. You know, <laughs> this is why, you know, this race of old thing is on Steve's bike and everything else. So I got to be really good friends with Steve. And um, there was an opportunity to get a pro stock motorcycle bike from the mainland. Because with the Race to Vote program, I was trying to work with a lot of the locals over here to use their bike mm-hmm. to put the logo on top of there. And if we can take it to go and do exhibitions, like, you know, to be on display for whenever we're going to be. Because I'm fortunate where I, I worked with a lot of the companies here to be able to be sponsored by them. So when they have their events, you know, I go over there and videotape it, be a part of their, their community events and that kind of type of thing. So I was looking to be able to team up with some of the local racers. But Hawaii, the Ama Crab State, the way it is, yeah. I didn't want to be in a situation where, you know, the guy's having a bad day or he got jealous of what we we're planning on doing and saying, oh, nah, no can today, bro. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Steve helped me to find his particular bike from the mainland. And um, I was fortunate enough to get sponsors who underwrote it. Oh, nice. So that bike that you see over there, yeah. I didn't pay a penny for it. Really? Yeah. I didn't uh, pay a penny for it. That's a deal, man. And so as I started to get to do with Steve and this particular bike, Instead of it just being a display vehicle, I'm like, this bike is fast enough for me to get licensed in the NHRA as a professional. You know, and while the bike was still stuck over there in Illinois, a whole bunch of other things happened because I did another TV show and so I sold some of its assets to be able to pay for the bike to get trucked from Illinois to California. And Coletta, which is one of the top teams in the NHRA, he also owns an air freight company. And so <laughs> oh. his, his air freight company 
leases their planes to one of the freight companies here. So they contacted this local freight company and told them, you're flying this bike for Punisher Motorsports to Honolulu. And oh. that's how that bike got flown from the mainland to here. Oh, wow. So, in, you know, it's one of those things where the networking thing kind of goes along. Yep. And then as we were doing that Race the Vault stuff, I got friends with um, Karen Stouffer. She is one of the top professionals in that category. She's finishing the top 10, you know, like 12 times in her career type of stuff. So when we had the bike over here, it was on display at Ron's. Karen came over here to help me to get the bike um, noticed. We got some press coverage out of it. And then when we did the race to vote thing, Steve flew in. And as I was speaking to Karen and them guys, you know, I got the opportunity to, to start getting their tutelage to get um, seat time on a bike on the mainland. And um, the opportunity came up, you know, and as I work with sponsors or as I'm doing the television program, funding is extremely limited. So I ended up taking some part-time jobs, <laughs> right? I, I, I ended up to, to try and get some money just to fly up there to rent the bike. So wow. there was a guy who was doing a deck. <laughs> He's building a deck on his own. He had the permits and everything else, yeah. but they, they had a contractor who came in, but I had you know, experience putting together. I, I did construction for a long time. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? So I ended up, the guy saw me and ended up working on this guy's house project for like about two months. Earning enough money, <laughs> taking recycled cans. You know but see, that's I mean? the thing. Like it's, the, like, it's the sacrifice to just keep exactly. trying to move forward. And a lot of folks think that, yeah, you got this and you got that, but the other things, you know what I mean? And, and now we got to this point where I'm working with other companies now where they're going to be underwriting even me to fly to the mainland to get licensed. That's awesome. Why are they doing that? It's because now my television show, Punisher Motorsports, after 22 years in 2022, is going to have the opportunity to be the first program here for the state of Hawaii to go national. You know what I mean? So come April, uh, it's a three-year deal. We're going to be doing it nationally. Oh, nice. And so what we're doing, too, is we're going to be shooting, besides all these project builds with all these other sponsors that I've worked with over the years, from Miller Welders to Edelbrock to Napa to all these different companies, now when they thought that we were just going to be here for builds on a, on a local television show, they got the added bonus that they never probably thought was going to happen, which is going to be the national arena now. You know what I mean? So with that, we're going to also be taping a lot of stuff with me getting licensed. That's going to be part of the program. So it's going to just expand and, and uh, just so many things that I never thought that these things would have come to this level. You know what I mean? But it's about sacrificing and not stopping what you, you know, you, you envision in your head and these dreams and you just keep going. Like when I started this, you know, thing 23 years ago, like would you have ever imagined that your show would be going national and you're working with these companies? Yeah. You know, and it's like, you're going to have a pro-stop motorcycle bike in your garage. And Steve Johnson, this guy that you idolized when you were just doing, you know, bracket racing back in the day, not as your bud. Yeah. And then, and <laughs> you're working with him now. And he's helping me to go and use his second bike to get licensed in this coming year. A lot of stuff was supposed to happen last year, but because of the COVID situation, you know, things got kind of pushed back well, a see, whole and that's, year. And that's know? fascinating because I'm, I'm learning all this at the same time, anyone who's listening is learning all this about you. Because I've met you a few years ago, actually. What? Maybe like, was it 2018? Yeah, when you and I were both running in 2018 for office. Yeah, yeah we yeah, were yeah. both running for office. After we, both our, after we both got our butts kicked in the primary. <laughs> and then we ended up being at a, 
at a um, community function. Yeah, I'm trying, you, to, I'm trying to remember. Like, what, yeah, what was that? I saw you sitting at the table, and I knew who you were. I think so, I was there with my friend Frobel. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think you were. And then Frobel. I think he yeah, had yeah. somebody visiting. Yeah. But I just can't remember what the maybe I don't know Filipino Chamber of Commerce. Or I don't, something. I don't yeah, know, yeah. It was one of those. It was one of those community activities. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad we connected. Yeah. We were able to continue talking story through this whole time. Yeah. Um, and we got to be pretty good friends over those couple, of, you know, two, three, three years now since. Yeah. Because so, yeah. it's fascinating. Like I don't, you know, your path is a lot different than mine, but you're kind of in the same way. Like people don't see the struggle or the things that you it did doesn't. along the way. You know, it's it's amazing, right? It's kind of like when you're when, especially like when. I was doing this back in the day, you know, before you were born. Yeah, before I came out the womb. There's, there's not, there's not, um, you think that it's kind of exclusive to you, this particular struggle. Yeah. But now with social media or cable, like like the documentaries and stuff, one of the, the shows that I'm kind of hooked on right now is this thing called The Food That Built America. And you see all these struggles for these companies like Kraft and all of these guys or like Elon oh, Musk struggle. I, I, I've seen that. And yeah. all of those programs and stuff like that. So when you... When you watch how these guys came out, it's like, wow! It's the the story of how they got there is identical. Uh, is different. Their their pathway is different, but the struggle is identical. Yeah. Everybody struggled to get there. So if you're thinking that, you know, it's going to become an overnight success, nah. And you know, one of the things that I always took from my grandmother, rest her soul, she was uh, she had always told me two things that I always remember to this day. Right, Rome wasn't built overnight, and if it's worthwhile, you're gonna you're gonna just keep doing what you need to do. Right. And the, the second thing that she always told me, if I ever see you sitting on the side of the curb crying, I'm gonna kick <laughs> you in your butt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's it's um, the world doesn't care. Everybody's got their own problems, right? Yeah. Everybody who has their struggles, <clears throat> nobody cares about your story until you're finally successful. Dude, hundred percent. I mean. Yeah. Even for me, like I'm not super successful, but a lot of the things that I've set out to do, I mean, people don't understand the struggle, and I'm not going to get into that whole argument about, oh, okay, white privilege and all these things, and I'm right, just handed opportunities. Right. Yeah, yeah. I've worked very hard for the things that I have, yeah. and uh, but they are there the second that they see you in a photo with someone who's important, and they want to know, oh, how do you know that person? What do you, how are you in that group? How do you know these people? How do you have this and that? Right, right, right. But they don't want to hear about the struggle and the things that happened before right. that, yeah. But, it, wasn't, it wasn't handed. Nobody yeah. who's gotten to there, right, on a silver path. Like even Elon Musk, yeah, he sold you know, PayPal and all of that type of thing. But you look at him, he leveraged everything yeah. for those three companies, he was borrowing money from friends to pay rent. He was sleeping <laughs> on friends' sofas. Yeah. He was sleeping on floors. Yeah. Right? And that's something like, even for me, like in Hawaii, you know, I couch surfed for the longest time. I didn't have a, a permanent place to stay. Yeah. I was never homeless on the street, thankfully. But, you know, just if you want it, if you want to be in there, if you have a particular dream or a goal, yeah. you'll fight for it if you really want it. Everybody always says this, regardless of who it is. They always said that if you chase the money, it's always going to be beyond your reach. But yep. if you chase your passions, it's eventually going to catch up to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because hard, it's a good one, yeah. hard work never is ever goes unrewarded. It eventually comes back. The problem is you got to stay vigilant and stay focused and 
you know, Jimmy V said it the best. Never give up. Ne the guy who had cancer was always preaching, never give up. You know what I mean? I mean, you watch his story about how he came to prominence and how his team won the national championship right, in, in collegiate hoops. I mean, all of these guys, like, like Tom Brady. Yeah. You listen to all these guys, every, the struggles are all identical. But we only see the success. Yes, that's the problem with it, right? You never see them from Pop Warner football. Right. <laughs> you never yeah. see them getting a concussion when he was in, you know, in uh, high school, right? It's like yeah. the, the thing about it, it's, it's the victories for them to get there. It's, it, it, it's not easy, man. It is not easy. And, you know, even your loved ones, um, most of the time, they don't understand it either. And that's the thing, too. <clears throat> Actually, even when I, my idea, even with the podcast, like I, the last people that I told were f family. They don't even know. Right. And right. friends, because they're with you every day. It's like um, if you're trying to lose weight, if you don't take a before photo, you see yourself every day. Yeah, right, 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 right. You right. don't you notice, don't notice you're losing the weight. Right. The people around you don't particularly notice you're losing the weight because they see you every you see day. every day. So they're not seeing your, your struggle, the hard work you're putting in. They just know, oh, you can't hang out tonight for whatever reason. Right, right. But um, so those are the hardest ones to convince. But uh, once you convince them, then, you know, it's golden. But uh, I, I want to revert back to Tom Brady. And I can't stand that guy. But I love him. I, think I, couldn't, I couldn't either until, <laughs> until I found out what really happened with Deflategate and how he held his composure and never... You know, blasted the NFL. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and then when you started hearing the stories about what a great guy he was with yeah. the Tampa Bay, then I, it's like I started cheering for the guy. <laughs> it's hard to mean? hate him. Right? Yeah, you couldn't hate him. <laughs> as much and as I want to hate him. And then when they won the Super Bowl after that, it was like, you know, because everybody kept saying that Belichick was the brain trust. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you see him, and even, even um, Aaron's, right, the coach from um, Tampa Bay, mm -hmm. right, he was saying, the guy who said, man, one man. One man made the difference. Yeah. You know? Well, and then he brought Antonio Brown and uh. Because the team listened to him. Nobody else was, was going to listen yep. to him. Listen to what's going on with Russell Wilson right now. Russell Wilson <laughs> is just as talented, right? But you know, Seattle, you know, they're they're not listening to what he needed to do. They he you know Brady proved that if he knows what he's talking about, he's such a disciplined player, mm -hmm. right? He can see because he's the general on the field that can tell yep. you. The coaches are on the field. Yeah. You know what I mean? Most of these guys, most of the coaches, they came through the coaching ranks. They're not a player. Yeah. Much less at a professional level. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. But, and he's just another example of, of, of someone, that you, you just see the success and you hate his success. But yeah. he has played for years. You know, I didn't know who he was until he started winning. You know? The guy was drafted what? I don't even know. Wait, he, wait, was he the same class as Ben Roethlisberger? He was, I don't, I'm not really sure, but I, I know that he was like the last guy drafted kind of type of stuff. Really? And those are those stories. Those, yeah. are, those are those stories you where it's like saw it. the last dude, yeah. nobody wanted. In the meantime, you see like the Ryan Leafs. How did they work out, <laughs> right? Top draft picks. You Oops. know what I mean? So it's, it's all about the, the hard work, which is, which is something that I feel that is kind of slipping away in the mentality of a lot of people. And it kind of goes back to your story. You, were, you didn't go to college to be a camera guy, to do editing. No. But you were like the top in your, your field. I but was never good in school. See, I was, I was, I was, I was never, you know, you hear that from all these entrepreneurs. Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. You know, all these different types of guys. They, they talk about the school system is not made for... 
they don't even teach kids anymore about how to be financially responsible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's um, it's something that if it was taught, I I I never did well in school. I was never um, interested in school because the curriculum was. But every time I took one of those IQ tests, you know what I mean? It was I was in the upper you know one percentile. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, I think I think I think of those kinds of people. <clears throat> I don't know where I'm at. I never took one, but I'm me myself. I'm more of a hands-on type of like I just yeah. want to do. I, yeah. I I don't know, man. I don't need a music class. It's not my interest. But yet you have to sit through a music class. I have a a master's in public administration, and I still had to take classes even during my bachelor's that I right, I, I wasn't right, interested yeah. in. But I, luckily the GI Bill covered it. But I. I I don't see why it ha- you know, Why did I have to take electives in class, like art? I don't care about modernism, art. I don't know, like whatever, right, right. you know, music, things like this. Like, uh, it doesn't interest me. Um, you look at today, though, especially a lot of the kids from your generation, the vast majority I know of folks that went to college, easily yeah. over 90 percentile, right? They're, they're, they're struggling with the, the, the load of the student debt, yep. and they're not even in the field that they got yeah. their particular degree from. And, but in their defense, and in my, de- well, not my defense, because I made my own choices, but uh, when I was in high school, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We didn't know, like, our high school didn't teach us about anything, really. Right. We right, didn't know right. about grants. We didn't know about scholarships. We didn't know. All, all we knew was that we didn't, we shouldn't work as hard as our parents. My dad did construction. My mom working two, three jobs. We should get a suit and tie. We should get a college degree and be in an office. That's what we had to do. So that's what we were all told. Right, right, right. We, we had to go to college. We had to get a suit and tie. We had to go to an office in the air conditioning. We didn't want to have to work hard. <laughs> so an entire, like, two or three generations were, were told this, you know? And then when we go to college, we start realizing, like, oh, wait, no, this is not, this is not what I want. And then you graduate with a whatever degree in liberal arts or liberal sciences. right. right. Which it doesn't translate to any real career. Because what happened was, right, college started to try to be everything to anybody. Yeah. Right? So now, instead of getting core academics down, they started to expanding it to literally a lot of these courses and classes or degrees that people get. I mean, you can kind of like mix and match your own thing yeah. to try and make a hybrid degree. Listen, I really knew college was a scam. They offered... Diplomacy and military studies as a graduate degree. Now, when you look at your career field from that degree, it says like foreign service officer, diplomat, ambassador. Okay, so first of all, you cannot apply to be a diplomat or an ambassador. You have to be a campaign donor to a presidential candidate who wins. Right, right, because it's an appointed position. To be a foreign service officer. Right, right, right. I'm not sure if you have to have a bachelor's degree. You might. But I've taken that test three times, and I, I've gotten to the second stage, which is uh, an essay. I'm always beaten because of the curve. And to be honest, I'm always beaten by some... Um, I think the last person I got beaten by was a... He was a, an immigrant from Nigeria. Super smart. So these tests, like this degree does not get you that job. That's just a possible career path. Right, you still right, have to right. take all these tests and you still have to go through this whole process. Um, and then well, I was working at a law firm, a family law firm, which is sad, family law. But, um, 
And then UH announced that for their law school, if you graduated from UH with a 3.2, you didn't have to take the LSAT. You could just go right into law school. And this is at a time when law schools were saying that um, uh, class sizes were dropping because no one was going to law school. Right. So they need to raise the revenue. And I mean, you could take law school online now because it's, it's just a business. And my bosses at the law firm would always complain because a lot of these new attorneys that were coming out of law school barely passed the bar. And a lot of people who go to law school cannot pass the bar. They just have a law degree, so they have to go work for a nonprofit or something, but they, they can't pass the bar because they're just letting people who should not be in law school right, attend right, law right. school. It's kind of like a lot of the situations right now. It's like instead of having folks still have to meet the bar, the bar is now continually getting lowered. Yes, yes. And I mean, sadly, we're seeing that with a lot of things. And again, I don't want to get too much into it, but I saw a thing about NASA says they're going to put like a, a woman or a colored person on the moon by some date. Right, 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 right. You know. Um, it's, like, it's like all in the name of trying to make a record of being the first or something. Yeah. Versus, it, being, versus being properly qualified or, yes, you know what I mean? That, that you deserve the position because of your qualifications. Yeah. You know, it's like, but you, you know, the same thing. You look at all these guys today, Jeff Bezos, Elon mm -hmm. Musk. They worked Gary hard. Vaynerchuk, all of these guys, right? You try and ask them about an MBA, they says they will never, um, Warren yeah. Buffett. It's like MBA, we will never hire anybody who has an MBA because they're damaged goods already. Yeah, because they don't have... Like for you with the editing and the, and the racing and the knowledge, like that was your passion, right? Right. Somewhere along the line, it went from people's passions to do these jobs to, hey, that's a salary I can make. And yeah, maybe right. I can kind of do that. So a lot, of those things, a lot of those things can't be found in a book. It's only that yeah. you can learn from experience. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Like when, when, we, when we, a lot of the folks that go through the, um, the broadcast programs, right? Um, TV Pro, Leeward Community College, all of those type of things. You can show people the book of how to turn a camera on, what to, what, you know, where's the power button, how to focus. Mm -hmm. You can't teach them when to, when to focus properly, how to rack a focus to make it, you know, a um, artistic shot, mm -hmm. when to open your iris, when you should pull it down. You know what I mean? Those type of things only come from experience. And at the end of the day, what happens? If you're really good in that particular industry, you're going to get to compete for things like Emmy Awards. They yeah. don't just give those things out yeah. to you because you got a degree in TV Pro. Well, I'm not, I've always been under the belief that back in Pittsburgh, we had a thing called the Art Institute. <clears throat> and you could go there and learn how to do art, right. like graphic design right, and stuff. Right, 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 right. But man, in my opinion, if you have to go to school to learn that, you're not going to be as good as someone who just genuinely had that passion yeah. and desire. Like, if you aren't, you know, 10 years old right now learning how to code Python on your computer by yourself because you just find it fun. Right, right. If you're going to go to a school to learn how to code, you are never yeah. going to be at the level of that 10-year-old kid because it's not your passion. But it's just something that maybe you're kind of good at that you right, feel you should right, pursue. Right. But You know, Eddie Van Halen said it once, you know, because Eddie Van Halen never had... Um, Guitar like, lessons. Yeah, like, like, like that kind of type of stuff, right? But he, he came from a musical family, so he did mm -hmm. have some sort of, you know, introduction to 
proper notes and and that kind of type of thing because his his father was a traveling musician mm -hmm. right but he said if everything new is found outside of the book and if all you know is the book mm -hmm. how are you going to discover anything new because <laughs> when Eddie Van Halen all the techniques that he did to you know back in the day the hammer-ons and all that type of stuff you couldn't find it in a musical book but because yeah. of what he did there are music books now that that be able to you know <laughs> be able to show people or teach him musically yeah but see you know what he did but he wrote the book but see and the right? thing is like in my opinion like he's like Jimi Hendrix and all those guys who, who are great artists dude they were on like drugs and shit like some people, they, they, they do things to take them to another level. Even people who work at Silicon Valley are like microdosing on LSD to create all these amazing oh, right, programs. Right, right. Like, yeah. But again, that's because that's their passion and they're willing to do what it takes to get what they need. Right. Yeah, Because it's, <laughs> it's another form of art. Yeah, for sure. For art, sure. When any, anything you know, has to do with art, like, like for me, a lot of the things that we do and we're fortunate and I get a lot of support for it sponsor-wise and stuff is because... I'm creating something that's never been done before, right? Like, like taking a, a particular motorcycle and cutting it up, redoing the bodywork, and making it look like a modern motor GP bike from a bike that's from 2001, 20 years ago. That, <laughs> that looked like, a, that looked like a, a, a bread box. Yeah. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, it's going to get a lot of notice and, and recognition because of what it stands for. And at the end of the day, when you look at it, most people will get it like it's actually an expressive form of art. Oh, no, of course. I, mean? I think, I think anything that someone can do that's, uh, I don't know, creative or just kind of out of the ordinary or different is like art. Like I don't know, like I don't consider art like necessarily like a painting or a sculpture oh, yeah. or something. Um, you know, some people like uh, love him or hate him. Obama, the art of of of. of of talking to people. Right, He's a great order. Yes, like, he is. That's, a, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> he is like a, I don't know, maybe like a once or twice in a lifetime person that right. I'll ever see that can give a speech and it's just completely captivating and fascinating right, to me. Like right, I love right, right. listening to Obama talk. And to me, that's, that's art. Right. Um, like Kennedy. I, could, I can listen to a lot of Kennedy's old speeches. Yeah. How he inspired folks. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what the UN was, how it, it, it motivated a country to go to the moon. Mm -hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's, um, it's important, like a lot of things. You know, it, it, it's unfortunate that we see a lot of stalwart organizations, companies, corporations, like Sears or Love's Bread that I grew up on. You know, 100-something-year-old companies are vanishing. Um, and it's sorry and sad to say it's because they weren't able to adapt and adjust yeah. to the changing economies. You know, if, if, if all I kept sticking around with back in the day was, no, I need to edit just tape to tape. Yeah. Right? Um, <clears throat> 1080. You know, like all of the stuff that now <laughs> that we're shooting, you know, or, or um, standard definition because my camera can shoot macro really well. You know, it's, it's you got to learn to adapt and change, constantly changing. The whole earth is evolving all the time. All the time. All the time. It's never going to stay the same. So you have to continue. Like even right now, when we're shooting all of the new content for the program, yes, 1080 is the television's industry standard, but we're shooting in 2K because we have to be able to, you know, look for how the future is going to be moving. And it's not going to go backwards in the resolution. It's only going to move forward. Hey, man, they got 8K already. Right, right. But for, for, for the... The, the 2K anyway, 
at least you know the footage that we shoot today is going to be archival footage that we can still utilize five, six, seven, eight years from now. Whenever they're going to move up to that. Yeah, but level. then, you know what? Like, in, like, 10 years, it's going to look all blurry. Like, you ever watch, like, a 90s TV show? Like, oh, why is it so Well, it'll be it'll, so blurry. Instead of letterbox, right? Now, it'll be, like, it'll be like a postage stamp yeah. in the middle of your huge screen, Yeah, you're like, right? what the hell? But, I mean, it, it can... But you can still... I mean, through the capabilities when you export files, now, you can still have it exported as an HD file, though. Yeah, true, You know true, what I mean? True. So, there, there's a lot of things that you got to be able to, to keep up with with the times. You know what I mean? So... Um, unfortunately, even if they say 8K, you're still going to have to have an 8K screen to be able to view it. And yeah. they, they did a test when 4K started coming out. And they said the human eye honestly cannot discern even the most minutest thing beyond 2K. Really? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Yeah. So human, that's why it the human the- eye is just not capable. Unless now <laughs> they're looking at us having, you know, implants in our eyes. It's going to make us bionic. Hey, bro. Neuralink. Elon Musk again. Right. It's it fascinates me. Someone like Elon Musk, who is just this this wealthy guy, he's intelligent in a certain sense. He learned. He learned. He learned um, space engineering on his own. Yeah. Because no one was willing to teach him. But it, isn't it fascinating though? Like, there's so many millionaires and billionaires, and they're just they're doing nothing with their money. Okay. They, they, they give to like charities and nonprofits, right. but that's a tax write off. That's why people start an LLC, right? right? right. Tax write off. This dude was like, uh, I'm going to go to the moon. Mars. Or I want to go to Mars. I want to go like, to Mars. Let's just do it. Yeah. Dude, we could have been to Mars like a century ago if, if these same millionaires would have just put. Well, we, we, we could have been in, you know, energy independent as far as the nation was from the 70s. Yeah. When we had the first oil embargo back then. Mm-hmm. We could have used that as an opportunity to say, okay, hey, we can wean ourselves off of this oil and let's start looking for other alternatives. But because, you know, the oil prices was dropped back down again, so it was like, uh, it, we're okay for now, yeah. right? Which, which now is funny is uh, even when you look at the, the oil industry now and how we're converting to electric vehicles and... People drive their Prius and their Tesla, and they say, oh, I'm saving the environment, blah, blah, blah. Like, But how are they getting the electricity, though? Yeah, they just don't, people don't get it. But I do want to circle back to the, to the art. Okay. Because with you recreating the bike to make it more of a modern, because um, you said like an old school bread box to more yeah, of a it's modern. Kind of, it's kind of like one of those things, like even when I began racing back in the day, you know, there weren't as much race parts as... as per se, today, right? More available quality-wise as well, too, because they were still figuring it out. When I was racing, there was no such thing as an air shifter. Like I showed you on a bike, where you push this button where it shifts it into the next gear, where it momentarily, electronically kills the ignition for a thousandth of a second so that it could bump into the next gear. They had this thing called a two-step, where you can be on a rev limiter so you can launch at a higher RPM before you dump the clutch. When I stopped drag racing back in 19... 1989, when I stopped drag racing. Oh, drag racing. Drag racing. That was a device that was just still brand new. Now everybody has it. Street Outlaws, all these guys use it. What I want to do is I want to circle back to to art and and your definition of art, my definition of art. Um, So I just want to say that my definition of art is anything that makes someone think, especially think outside the box. So you were saying that you took a, an old school bike that was like a, a bread loaf, I think you described it as, right, right. and made it more of a modern bike. Right. So explain uh, what you mean by that. It's, um, 
it's trying to create something that you have available, right? So a lot of artists, like when I first began racing back in the day, you know, a lot of the things that was available back then was still brand new. And brand new always means expensive. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So I couldn't afford it. So a lot of the stuff that I would do is I would recreate my own. You know, a guy told me, showed me a long time ago where like to shift it into the next gear. You know, and you have your, your cutoff switch to start the motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. Would put a spring in it. Because in that way, if you hit it and you let go, it would spring back in and not kill the ignition. But it would do it just for momentarily. Same thing that an air shifter does. Or what they call an electronic shift nowadays. Oh, I see. Right? So that's particular stuff. Because the air shifters, I couldn't afford it back then. You know what I mean? So even today, it's... A lot of these GP bikes that, that come out and things like that, they're, they're specifically made for factory teams. And these guys have millions of dollars in their budget. <laughs> Everything is carbon fiber or titanium something, right? So for me to be able to take an older bike to be able to mimic or look like mm-hmm. what a modern, you know, Moto GP bike looks like doesn't exist. So you got to kind of make it on yourself. So cutting up the existing fairing to butcher it up to be able to do it. And I was able to do that because I learned how to do body and fender a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And then a the guy who I knew recently who owns a company called Learn Auto Body and Paint who was in Texas where he teaches people from his online courses how to do body and fender. Well, come to find this guy was from Hawaii, <laughs> right? And so I made a connection with him and through my television show, using it as a platform, he allowed me, he gave me a password, a special access code to his online teaching programs. And I learned about this new thing that wasn't available when I stopped Body and Fender 35 years ago called epoxies. Epoxy? Epoxy wasn't around back <laughs> yeah. then. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah, yeah. you couldn't do it. Huh. The epoxies that were around back then were crap. Ah. It was, like El- <laughs> it was, it was worse than Elmer's glue. Uh. <laughs> he probably put it on and if you sneeze, the thing would fall off. Fall off, yeah. yeah. Right? Oh, so... These epoxies nowadays are amazing because you can, you can take dissimilar materials like fiberglass and make it bond to metal. Wow, and yeah. And the thing is so amazing where you can grab that little piece of fiberglass and try and tug it off the metal and you can lift up the whole car from it. You know <laughs> what I mean? So I got to be fortunate to learn it from Tony's LearnAutoBodyAndPaint.com and Tony moved back to Hawaii. Oh yeah? Where's so he staying now? He's up in Pupukeasa. He's He and his family's bought a nice house up there so he... You know, we're going to be doing a lot of projects with him from his his place. So he converted his three-car garage that was at the house that he bought. And it's now going to be a paint booth. Right? So <laughs> I love that. It's um, Again, it, that's the passion. It's a passion. For the, for the... But the thing about it, too, is um, finding and working with like minds mm-hmm. and collaborating. Where a lot of these folks, I see them, especially the young kids. It's like, well, because I learned how to do this. If I'm going to work with you, even if you have value of what you can bring or you can give to me... You still need to pay me in, in money. A lot of the folks and these kids got to learn. It's like if you can work with each other and help each other out, it's not always about the money. Because if you had to pay, if that guy had to pay you to be able to, for you to help him to get what he wants out of your skill level, he couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's trying to find like minds and collaborate and to be really honest, man. Um, all the support that I've gotten for what I've been doing here for my company and the projects that we do, 95% of all my support comes from folks outside of this state. 
when you try to work with somebody here in the state, right, it's they refuse to help you or they get jealous because they see you doing something. Like, how can this guy be coming from the same place where I am mm-hmm. and he's doing it, but I can't? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, well, if we work together, I can help you get there too. No, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide not to help you instead mm-hmm. because I'm hoping that if I don't help you with my skill, you're going to sit down and cry and not do what you need to do. No, my grandmother told me a long time ago, right? Remember what I told you, right? <laughs> yeah. If I was you sitting on the side of the curb, I'm going to kick you in your butt. <laughs> Let's see, what, that, what those people don't realize is if they haven't done it and aren't doing it, just because you f- fail or succeed, you know, are they going to do it? Or, or, or if you fail, are they going to do it? Are no. they going to fill that void? They're not. They're so not. The majority of the time, like all these type of people who have that mindset, I can go back 10 years from now and they're still going to be doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? But in the meantime, now, like... I'll give you a good example, like um, cutting vinyl stickers because sponsor logos and everything else. If you go out and try and get somebody to do it, you know, it's like a little small logo for them to digitize it and then cut it. You're looking at, you know, 50 bucks for it to digitize and then they charge you per square inch. So this one little sticker, <laughs> yeah. right at the end of the day, is going to probably cost you just to research and development is going to be like 100 bucks. Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm like, shit, I didn't want it in that color. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then now you got to go back to the guy and then he's going to charge you now because it's digitized uh, 50 bucks for that sticker. So I had learned how to do it on my own because this other you know, good friend of mine, his wife did it for me before. So she just told me, go get this machine. Do it yourself. Then when I asked her how to do it, she wouldn't even <laughs> tell me how to do it. I had to go find it on my own. Right? <laughs> yeah, YouTube it. Yeah, so even then there was nothing really about it. So like, I wasted a lot of material. <laughs> right trying to figure it out but then again it's like pennies yes yeah right and now like when you see my bike all those logos on top of the, the sponsor logos, i did it myself mm-hmm. and if i had to do it and pay somebody to do it that was probably like about five hundred dollars worth of logos on the yeah. bike i can change it out tomorrow and because now i'm going to use it for a different sponsor for their particular event i can change it out every day and it doesn't it costs me a uh, two feet by five feet sheet that cost me 10 bucks to get shipped over here yeah you know what i mean well, see, and again, that goes to um, people like yourself, other people that I know, um, and how I consider myself. If you want something, you just do it. You don't wait for anyone to do it for you. Yeah. Um, not, you know, a lot of people will let you down along the way, they, which sucks. They, they, they will, and at the most inopportune time as well. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I learned, like, even when we're doing Punish Them, mm-hmm. um, because I was never the guy in front of the camera. Now, most of the folks who watch Punisher know me as the host of the TV show. They don't mm-hmm. understand I do everything. When we were still at Olelo, a guy who was a friend who had brought the host to the table, who she was in radio at the time, two days before when I was supposed to be able to take my next episode, they tell me, um, yeah, we're not going to do it with you anymore. Bye. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, luckily, I called up a, mother, a good friend of mine, Sue, I worked together now who's a senator I called him up if he could help me out to find someone else and we got someone filled in mm-hmm. you know and, and as time kept going along the way because a lot of these projects you know it, it, it doesn't make a lot of money you just basically make just enough to pay the bills right and because you're, you're, you're creating something when you know in year 17 when I did punish them I couldn't get sponsors on board hmm. right all of a sudden year 18 when I was able to perfect my, my pitch, I guess, mm-hmm. or I was able to improve the promotional packages, you know, it, it got 40 companies now today. Took off from there. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? So 
it's one of those things where you, you got to keep, you got to be able to push through the hard times. Because let me trust you, Mike Sakamoto, who's a well-known guy here in Hawaii, he started this program called Fishing Tales. This is back in the day. <laughs> I've heard it, of that. I was, don't know who the, it was when, Mike is, but I've heard of When that. OC16 first came about, <laughs> it was their anchor show when they were starting out their cable station. <laughs> okay? Mike Sakamoto ended up taking his program to national too, where he was on like the beginnings of like what was the outdoor channel. Oh, and if you nice. go and you research him from the old like the Honolulu Star Bulletin archive articles, because he's no longer you know th- they're no longer here today, mm-hmm. or like the old advertiser. If you go and check him out, he'll always say, "Man, if you cannot handle rejection in this business, don't do it, because you're gonna get a thousand no's before you finally get a eh, maybe." Yeah, you know what I mean. And it, it's, it's a lot of rejection, and you cannot take it personal. And it, <coughs> you gotta look at it as always learning experiences. And it's, it's, it's interesting because if, if you look at like people who are like, let's just go like, like actors, actors, they, they struggle. They live in their car. Waiting they live on, on the street. You look, they you wait know tables. Who, you know who was one of the best ones that I, I saw? If you look at what happened to Steve Harvey, when he talks yes. about his, his thing, when yeah. he's planning on quitting and going home. And then the phone call came in from that club in Florida, right? Uh, actually the, 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 um. The, um, that program, the, Har- the one out there in Harlem. Um, oh, um, dude, how is that escaping me? Right I know, now? yeah. That's, that's like the, lar- that's the, um, that largest program up there where oh my it God. was showcasing, you know, and they called him up. Live at the Apollo? Yes, yeah. the Live at the Apollo. When he talks about how he got that phone call, he's like, how am I going to get to New York? I, don't, I had 60 bucks on his, in his pocket at the time. And then the answering call came in from, that 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 club out there in Florida <laughs> and he drove over there and he got the money you know what I mean and mm-hmm. how all these guys like The Rock yeah, ex- got yeah. booed off the stage you know um, Jamie Foxx got booed off the stage and he did that routine where you know the buster got punched in the eye from Mike Tyson and the rest is history man but see and that's it and that's not like you actors you know, professional wrestlers, whether they like wrestling or not, but like these dudes sleep in their cars yep. for like a decade yep. to get on just for like some screen time or whatever, because that's their passion, you know. You look at The Rock, him and his family got, got evicted from mm-hmm. their home here. And they, and they just I mean? kept going. They kept, he just kept, look, or look at him, he went to Florida. He was a, he was a collegiate football player yep. that was ready to get drafted into the NFL and then he got hurt. Yeah. That ended his career. And that's kind of like, but if he was a professional football player, maybe the path for him to be this big movie star probably would not have happened. Probably wouldn't have happened, right? yeah. So, I mean, a lot of things, I think, when, when people look back on after they finally got the successes in their careers, they look back at those that was the hard times as blessings. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. And, and the thing, and again, that goes back to, like, I, I think that like, it's a lot of people who, they just haven't struggled they don't want to struggle. They're afraid to struggle, especially now with like social media. They don't want to post on yeah. Instagram that they're they're homeless. They're struggling on the street. They don't have a job. You know, they want to. They 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 go out and they spend all this money on all these fancy things to 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 put this persona out there right, or whatever. Right. But well, in reality, you just it's okay to struggle. And for anyone that hates on you for struggling for going for your dream, they're right. not your friend. Right. And when you do make it eventually, fuck them. That's it. So Tracy. I appreciate you coming on. 
what I'd like to do is I'll offer you a little bit of time if you have anything going on in your life that you want to talk about or anything like that, anything you want to announce. What is that thing? What is that program called? The hot, the hot stuff or whatever it is where they, if you were oh, able that's to hot all, ones. If you're able to eat all the hot wings at the end, then, then you'd be able to, to do your pitch at the end. You know hey, you I mean? made it and you get 30 seconds or whatever you want to close out with. You know, it, it's one of those things where I would, you know, we got, we got a whole bunch of blessings coming up. We got a major event that was supposed to happen last year. Um, a team that I thought that I was going to be able to hook up with in the NHRA kind of fell apart. Now I'm going to be hooking up with a guy who I've, is an idol of mine and now, you know, one of the legends in the sport. My TV show is going to go national. Um, some other major projects that's going to be coming out later that people are like, hey, I, re- I remember when he was <laughs> just talking about it. But these guys took like 12 years to they finally got to their particular, you know, they're getting the permits to do whatever they wanted to do now. Yeah, So awesome. it, it, it takes time. People got to realize... Um, if you wanted to try and make $5 million, how long would it take you to get that? For most folks, they'll, they'll never be able to accumulate that in a million lifetimes, mm-hmm. right? But if you believe in your vision and, you know, you, you can see that you have a solid game plan, then no obstacle in your way should ever stop you because, you know, if you keep working, the luckier you're going to get. There's, yeah. there's, there's no way around it. You just got to keep pushing forward and eventually your breakthrough is going to come. The, a, a girl who I saw a story about her who was trying to become Miss, you know, to get to the Miss America pageant, she six times before she finally, finally broke through. You know what I mean? And she became Miss USA or Miss America, or whatever it was. You know, you and I, how many times, how many campaigns have we lost so far? <laughs> I, how many numerous campaigns have I worked on? I've worked on campaigns from Arnold Mogado's run for mayor back in the early 90s where I was stuffing envelopes. To now, I got I get asked to help people on their, their, um, you know, consultants for them for their television ads and stuff like that. But if I never went and took the leap to get into television, that would not be the opportunities. And you that's, know what I mean? So you gotta be able to take. You can't be so rigid because if you look at a path, whenever someone succeeded, it's never in a straight line. It's like weaves in and out, goes backwards, comes back again, goes back again, and. Before, you know, a lot of times it's 60 steps back to take just a, a, a half step forward, you know. But as long as you keep trying to believing in what you're trying to do, there's nothing you can't do. But there's going to be sacrifices and suffering along the way. Oh, yeah. But you know what? <clears throat> just as you know, and, and, and myself and, and other friends that I have, the suffering, when I look back, I'm like, damn. If I made it out of that. Right. It ain't nothing can hold me back. Losing a campaign don't matter to me. I don't care. That's why a lot of folks, like a lot doesn't... of folks don't don't do it again. Folks who came really close before, mm-hmm. right? But because of the letdown of losing a campaign, it's it's very painful. I tell folks like, you know, because you put yourself so much out there. Even even your folks who help you, like my other half, my family, they cry with you at the end of the campaign. It's almost as, it's identical to seriously a loss in the family <laughs> yeah it is because it's huge no, it's huge <laughs> it's huge and most people cannot handle that kind of suffering and pain like when we when i lost my job due to the merger at the news station the vast majority of folks to even this day they never recovered from 2009 yeah because they were in a career where they were there for practically almost 20 years they never had enough setbacks to prepare them for that particular moment and man let me tell you brother life's all about suffering man and if you want to get to that opportunity to just touch the brass ring, there's going to be a lot of it along the path, man. It's not easy. 
I love it. I love it. Well, Tracy, I, I thank you for doing this with me. You're my fourth guest. Thank you, sir. Still trying to figure out the path and, and figure mm -hmm. out my way. I appreciate you being patient. Um, I think we could have a, a lot more in-depth conversation about a lot of other more philosophical things at another date. Um, I'm just fascinated about the racing aspect. I think that's your bike out there is beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'd race you on my Kawasaki Z400, but I don't want to embarrass you in front of your family and your sponsors and whatever, bro. Like, <laughs> right. you know. I, could, um, <laughs> I could go and take a nap in a sandwich before you even get to the finish line. <laughs> no. Well, well, I appreciate it. I, I hope you enjoyed yourself for here. And then, um, again, um, if you want to share any social media or if you have any, any website or anything that you do personally that you want to share with the people, go ahead. And then after that, we're just going to wrap it up. At Punish UM808 on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Punish UM on YouTube. And uh, stay tuned for the announcement on what national network. Uh, the thing that I can do say, though, that because of the, the partners that we're working with, it's also going to be on Amazon Prime uh, next year as well, too. The thing that we're trying to do is not make it so that when you see these episodes on the net, national network, where it's going to be regurgitated as the same stuff. We're going to make it that what you see on Prime is going to be different and uh, a whole smart. bunch of stuff on the social media. So that way, you know, it's it's just not the same old, same old. We're trying to be able to hit the different genres. And um, thanks to our partners, be able to watch out for, like, big giveaways. I can make an announcement. Like, you know, uh, we're going to be giving away things like turbos from our partners at TurboNetics Precision Turbo. What am I going to do with that on my Z400, bro? Uh, it, it could probably... I could set it next to it, right? And take yeah, a photo? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But yeah, so that kind of type of things that I can announce with. But uh, we're also working closely with the folks from Circuit Hawaii. And those guys are going to probably come out with an announcement very, very soon on a massive project where they're getting things like international certification for this new facility here on Oahu. So I'm excited that we actually got to work with a lot of these partners. And... Um, you know, for folks here in Hawaii, man, don't be afraid to reach out and, and work with folks, man. Don't be an ama crab. Reach out and, and do partnerships. So before we close out, it, <clears throat> if anyone out there is a, a racer or interested in racing or, or something like that, is there somewhere they can go, someone they can contact? You, maybe? Like an, an email yeah, or a website? Yeah, it's kind of hard. It's like, uh, it's, um, it's really hard. It's not something that, that you can just teach someone. They're going to have to mm -hmm. go through the struggles. Because people, like when we get to this level... Your partners, your sponsors, I'm, what I'm, I'm not going to go and tell somebody, go, hey, don't sponsor me no, anymore. Go and sponsor this guy who you don't even know about. Oh, yeah, you know, I, it's see, like, I see, I it, see. It took all of us a long time to build up relations. A lot of these guys, I've been with them, you know, coming, they, them coming from trips to Hawaii, you know, sending them macadamia nuts, meeting them <laughs> at PRI or SEMA. That's an ethics violation. No, you know I'm what kidding, I mean? But I mean, just, just to build up these relationships with these folks. You know, to, I've been fortunate now where these relationships are so solid. Uh, one of my partners are here right now, in Hawaii right now. And uh, we're going to do lunch next week before they get out of town. And one of them was over here a couple of weeks back. And so it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Because to run in professional racing, even in the motorcycle class, it's not cheap. This is, this is, this is a risky sport. And it's, it's very expensive. This is why for most folks, you know, even the folks who, who did here at the local level, let's put it this way. When you see these guys at the local level, like when they got like an eight-second bike or like a funny car, that's a, that's a house. Yeah, a funny yeah. car over here that's running on alcohol, it's not as fast as the guys in the mainland. 
right? But that guy's probably got close to $200,000 in it. This guy that's doing that bike, right? He's probably got about another $70,000 in the bike. Just that bike that you saw that has a practice motor out there. Yeah. Right? A used motor for that bike, that's like $13,000 for the motor. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's why like the motorsports, when it's a vibrant community, it helps with kids to be mechanics. Mm-hmm. And also the, the, the shops the, that cater to the motorsports community, they, they pay money every year to taxes. And all of them combined paid millions in taxes. So, <clears throat> so I guess my, my question is, though, if I'm a kid and I'm in high school and I, I'm fascinated, and I know we're supposed to close it out, but it's okay. If I'm fascinated with bikes or even cars, cars. my school doesn't offer a mechanics class. Yeah, it's kind of hard. We're fortunate that you know the DOE has gotten some funding uh, from the uh, 2020 legislature mm-hmm. where they're going to try and revive things in auto shop class, oh, train yeah, classes, yeah. right? Uh, wood shop, auto shop, that kind of type of things. So with having a vibrant motorsports community, like what Circuit Hawaii is planning on doing here, those type of things with the high schools go hand in hand. Like even when we were the television show, we're working with them to start another programming, mm-hmm. like a Punish Them Hawaii thing back again. Um, we want to work with the local high school classes and our partners with uh, the Napas, with, with the uh, wrecking yards, to get kids with these, these vehicles that are ready to get jumped for them to compete against each other, like a Kalaheo against high school or Campbell against Castle kind of type of stuff. And then at the end of the day, we have them compete on the stage where it's going to be when one of our major <laughs> events type of thing. You know, yeah, like, yeah. No, that's awesome. You know, so it's <clears throat> going to go hand in hand. It's going to be great. You know, like, like a lot of folks on me, like when I did my events over here, like, well, we got some possible future events coming up. The professionals come into town. I take these professionals that don't get exposure on the news and the helmets and the posters and we give tickets. We go to Shriners Hospital. We go to Kapilani Children's Hospital. We meet with the families. You know, you should see these kids who are battling cancer or some other debilitating disease and they light up. Yeah. These pros coming in, they're signing the poster and we give them tickets to come to the event. You know what I mean? It's an incentive. Like, hey, maybe if you got better before this weekend's event, you might be able to come out and come hang out with us and stuff, you know? Community, man. It's all about, it's about community. That's what it's about. Yeah. And hey, if you guys, <clears throat> with whatever future event you have, I'm a Shriner. Perfect. If you, if you want to, definitely, I can connect you to whoever you need That's to, what we always to get did. that going. We, we always did that. When I, we took the guys to Shriners Hospital to go and meet with the kids. And then right after that, we walked them across the street and we went to the Kapiolani Children's Hospital. <laughs> you nice. Know? So yeah, yeah it was, it, I always love to do things like that. You know, an opportunity for me, whenever I saw these pros coming over here, I always said that the day is going to come where it's going to be my hero card that I'll be signing for these kids. <laughs> my helmet that I'm going to be able to put on these kids and... Yeah, it's, it's coming, man. Yeah, it's good, man. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck. And uh, I hope once you start kicking other things off, I hope you'll come back and um, announce it again officially right. on the podcast. That, yeah. And we'll, we'll do what we can to, to promote it out there, you know. Um, but in the meantime, I hope you'll come back on again. Then in the meantime, man, I just really appreciate you coming on. I'm, I'm fascinated with, with the whole motorcycle racing and, and things like that. It just one question before I go. How many accidents have you had? I had several. And how many? Well, it's two questions. How many broken bones? I've been fortunate. I never had any broken bones. You know, I, I crashed twice on the mainland at over a triple digit. That's over 100 miles an hour. Um, I crashed twice here, Hawaii Racing Park, doing the drag racing when I was first <clears> starting, like coming out of the burnout box and dropped my bike. 
<laughs> very embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I did that twice. Oh, but yeah. I, I've crashed a couple of times on the mainland. And um, it's, um, for most folks, you know, I, I, I uh, dislocated my shoulder, um, stretched out under my toes, that kind of type of thing. I was fortunate where I never got, jammed my wrist, uh, messed up my shoulder, tore some ligaments. Uh, to this day, it, it, I still feel it. You know, it's going to get worse as I get older. That's why I kind of concentrate more on the drag racing because drag racing, the chances of you crashing is almost, you know, non-existent. But road racing, um, road racing, you're going to crash. It's just a matter of when. Ooh. When you go left and right really fast and you're sliding the bike around and braking and all that type of things, the, you're going to crash. <laughs> there's no, there's no, doubt, there's no doubt about it. But um, most folks can't handle that. A lot of the guys I know, once even they get off on like a low speed crash, they never come back again. Really? Right? Yeah. yeah. That's it. You gotta it's, have the heart. It's traumatic. You gotta have the heart for it. You know. So until for me, like most most especially motorcycle guys, the first thing I ask them is like, how many times you crashed? <laughs> right. Most of the guys with I've I've met only a handful of guys who said that they. They crashed and they still do it. For me, it would be more my ego. I'd be like, oh, there's somebody, is somebody gonna post that on Hungry Hungry Hawaiian or something? Like, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Tracy. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks. Um, and again, uh, we'll have to do this again. And I appreciate it. And again, when, whenever you're ready to kick everything off, please, okay. please come on, invite me over. We'll have some more whiskey and we'll talk story. Good luck with the, your podcast and uh, thank you, James. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it.